For most of us, social media has become a staple of daily life, whether we use it to connect with friends and family, to catch up on what's going on in the world, or just to pass the time in a lineup. In this episode of At Women's Research, Nicole Presley, Bryn Lavery, and Melissa Nelson discuss the many ways that researchers can harness the popularity and influence of social media platforms like Twitter or Facebook to disseminate research results and support knowledge translation campaigns. In other words, they talk about how it can be an invaluable tool for reaching those who need your research the most. To learn more about the campaigns discussed in this episode or to access the resources mentioned, check out our show notes. All right, welcome to our listeners and thanks for joining us for another episode of the At Women's Research Podcast. My name is Nicole Presley, pronouns she and her. I am the Knowledge Translation or KT Manager at the Women's Health Research Institute or WHRI. I am joined today by the dynamic social media duo, Melissa Nelson and Bryn Lavery. And today we are going to talk about their experiences and lessons learned from two KT projects that involved the strategic use of social media. With that, over to you, Melissa and Bryn, for some more introductions. I'm Melissa Nelson. My pronouns are also she and her, and you might uh, recognize my voice. I am the communications assistant here at the Women's Health Research Institute, and I helped uh, work on the It's Not In Your Head campaign, which was a knowledge translation campaign about a chronic genital pain condition called provoked vestibulodynia. And my name is Bryn Lavery. My pronouns are also she and hers. Um, and I'm the communications assistant at the uh, or at UBC Sexual Health Research. So uh, that's Lori's, um, or Dr. Lori Brado's research lab. Um, and I am the social media assistant on the Debunking Desire campaign, which we are currently running. Thanks, you two. So yeah, this is a great segue um, to, um, so both of you have worked on um, social media campaigns or knowledge translation uh, grants for Dr. Lori Brado, who's also the WHRI executive director. And and so maybe what I'll do is I'll give you, uh, our listeners, a, a bit of an overview of, of the awards that you guys both helped carried out or carrying out. Um, so both of these were Michael Smith found Foundation for Health Research Reach Awards, and these are um, competitions that that they launch once a year to support um, knowledge translation of um, a body of evidence. And and Melissa and and Bryn have both been instrumental in in operationalizing these projects. And and oftentimes, what we get questions about from our research community is is how to do KT. And so some. Some folks who are maybe considering using social media to disseminate their research findings to, you know, build awareness or inform different research users in the community may want to consider this. The other reason why we want to talk about this today is that th- there's other forms of, of uh, KT grants that exist. So CIHR also has planning and dissemination grants that might fit the bill for this type of work. And also, too, you know, knowledge translation is meant to be incorporated now into all grant applications. Um, so learning a bit about how you can do things with 
social media um, with or without extra funding um, could be helpful. So we hope that you listen along. Melissa and Bryn, you've already touched on uh, your respective roles. So I wonder if you want to tell um, us a bit about each of the campaigns, maybe starting with the It's Not In Your Head campaign. Sure. So the It's Not In Your Head campaign launched in October of 2017. And it was centered around a video that was produced sharing results from Dr. Lori Brado's comfort trial, which basically was looking at the use of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy versus cognitive behavioral therapy as a treatment option for women with provoked vestibulodynia. So this campaign was intended to share the video share the findings from that study, and then also just to raise awareness about the condition because it's uh, it actually affects one in 10 women, but it's often not spoken about. And it on average takes five to seven years for a woman with provoked vestibulodynia or PVD, um, which is a little bit easier to say over and over again. <laughs> um, uh, it often takes them an average of five to seven years to receive an accurate diagnosis. So it was really about trying to get the right information to these women so that they could take it to their healthcare providers who were often telling them that their symptoms were in their own head, um, that they that they were psychological when that just wasn't true. So that's a little bit about um, it's not in your head. Um, yeah, I'll turn the mic to Bryn. <laughs> Um, okay, so for the Debunking Desire campaign, so that campaign started in November 2019. However, kind of similarly with the It's Not In Your Head campaign, um, it initially started with a um, informational video that we had created uh, earlier that year in partnership with uh, UBC Studios. So um, we created this informational video from the study information from a, a study that our lab did called the Modest Study. So it was quite similar to uh, the comfort study that Melissa talked about in that it was comparing two different kinds of uh, group therapy to treat um, low sexual desire instead of genital pain. So um, it used cognitive behavioral therapy as well as mindfulness-based uh, cognitive therapy. And so what that study found was that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy actually really helps reduce the chronic stress that a lot of women feel. And this chronic stress is often a huge contributing factor to experiencing low sexual desire. And low sexual desire is also an extremely common concern um, for a lot of women. So one in three women will report experiencing low sexual desire. So that was kind of another reason why we wanted to start a knowledge translation campaign on this because, um, again, this is so, so common. And we did want to get our newly finished research study out there as well. Wow, fascinating. One in 10 and one in three. That's, um, that's definitely worthy of, a, of some aggressive knowledge translation work. So social media, is that was your sort of, uh, your, the tool that you used to disseminate the evidence. Is that correct? In conjunction with these sort of um, information videos? Yes, so talk to us a bit about um, how um, you accomplished your social media goals. Um, who did you involve? Um, in what capacity did you involve them? Sure. So 
it's not in your head, I think was um, vastly different than how I, I, I think I forgot to mention, I am involved with debunking desire as well, but in a completely different capacity, this go around. So the it's not in your head campaign, we took a really different approach to engaging influencers. And I know that's jargon. So an influencer is somebody <laughs> who has um, a large following on social media. Um, and typically they are paid or compensated in some way to share messages or to promote a product or something of that nature. So for it's not in your head, um, Dr. Botto actually engaged with an influencer agency. And what this meant is that, um, they're kind of like a marketing company. They had, um, a pool of people that they could reach out to and select from, um, to share our messaging. What was really fantastic about this is that we generated incredibly impressive numbers. In the end, uh, our combined efforts resulted in over a million impressions, which means that our content was seen over a million times by social media users. But the trade-off was that when you work with an agency, you actually have far less control over the process and you kind of um, inhibit your ability to um, sustain the campaign beyond the funding period because you've, you've lost those connections. It was also really great, though, because it was sort of the first big social media campaign that I think all of the team was involved with. And so it helped us to really gain an, an insight into a, a number of different social media and marketing strategies. So this agency helped us create um, newsletter content. They generated an original web article. They helped us plan and promote social events, which is again, jargon, but we'll talk about them later. So I'll let that be for now. And then, um, yeah, obviously they helped connect us with influencers. So we gave them messaging and, and they pumped it out. So just to, just to circle back. So are influencers, the people that you see that little check mark beside on Instagram is, is that an influencer? It can be, um, but not necessarily. Not necessarily. The little blue check marks mean verified. So typically when somebody has a really large following, they're susceptible to um, having people impersonate them or create new accounts. So it just means that that person's actually gone through the process with the social media platform to to actually confirm that they're really that person. But they don't have to have a ton of followers. Um, I, the, the influencers we worked with on that campaign, I, from my memory, had about seven to 10,000 followers on any given social platform, which um, there's tons that you can look into in order to, to gain an understanding of how many followers you want your person to have, what kind of budget you, you need to have to get um, a bigger influencer, but that, that I think is typically considered a small to medium size influencer. So it sounds like some really good lessons learned with the sustainability piece too, and the, um, the, the connections and, and the relationships that, that you built and what that happens after that influencer agency, their contract is up. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so tell us about what you guys have done now for debunking desire. So for Debunking Desire, we um, wanted to try uh, a bit of a different way to engage with our influencers, um, just because the It's Not In Your Head campaign was, as Melissa said, um, the first and the biggest campaign um, that a lot of people on that team were on for Debunking Desire 
kind of the same thing. And we just wanted to try something new um, to see how that would kind of work. So um, for this round for Debunking Desire, we wanted to seek out individual influencers rather than working with an influencer agency. So this involved us directly contacting influencers to work with. So for this, we um, had to create influencer contracts. Um, so we found a, a template for an influencer contract, um, I believe on Hootsuite or Sprout Social. Uh, both websites have really great uh, resources for working with influencers and for social media campaigns. So for this contract, um, we were able to specify the number of posts that we wanted from each influencer um, on what platform they would post on, um, which was really important because different influencers had different followings on different platforms or um, a varied following on different platforms. And we were also able to review the content of what was going to be in those posts. So it allowed us to have a lot more control and also a lot more back and forth with the influencers directly. Um, so that was really um, ended up being really beneficial to us. Um, so the influencers that we um, contacted directly for Debunking Desire so far um, have been uh, Eva Bloom, um, Shirley Weir of Menopause Chicks, uh, Pamela Fairman, who's a health journalist uh, here in BC, um, and then the Vancouver Sun, the newspaper. So our uh, material was posted on, or they posted on uh, YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, um, and also through more traditional forms of media like uh, print like for a newspaper and on websites. Um, so that was really, really great because we were able to see um, the differences in posting on different platforms and um, how different kinds of content for like videos versus um, just pictures or more live events, um, how uh, audiences reacted to each different platform. Then we decided to dive into podcasts. So we so far have worked with a number of different podcasts for the Debunking Desire campaign. We've worked with the Approachable podcast, which is hosted by uh, Samantha Ravendahl and Alyssa Anderson. We've worked with the Papaya podcast, which is hosted by Sarah Nicole Land, Sexy Marriage Radio, which is hosted by Dr. Corey Allen. And then most recently, um, Experiments in Pleasure which is hosted by uh, Antonia Hall. So working with podcasters um, has been a really beneficial foray for us because podcasters, it's, it's essentially like a mutually beneficial relationship. So while podcasters need content um, and often podcasters have like a certain length of show that their um, podcast is on air for whether it's like 30 minutes to an hour um, they have to fill that 30 minutes to an hour with interesting engaging content and we needed a place to advertise our campaign so um, it really ended up being a, um, a very good relationship to have with podcasters um, and uh, we are continuing to work with more. We're continuing to reach out to, to more podcasters um, because we've been finding it to be uh, so successful so, so far.
That's fascinating and, and great, great work. Um, so I, I think it's worth mentioning um, that we'll, we'll post links to um, the resources that Bryn mentioned um, for the influencer contracts. Uh, that's such a practical um, tool to have because a lot of us are just uh, do, flying by the seat of their pants and you might be able to save someone a Google search. So it sounds like you've got... Um, there's a, a long list of, or, or maybe not so long, a list of influencers that you reached out to, but I'd love to um, know how you decided that these were the people that you were going to reach out to. Because, um, you know, you mentioned, um, you, you mentioned some local people who the names are familiar. So um, was that a part of it? Does sort of um, influencer values or, or uh, geography play into that? The first influencer that we actually approached was Eva Bloom. So Eva is a um, sexual health educator based out of Ontario, and she's got a uh, smaller following. Um, well, on Instagram now, I actually think she's um, has about 10,000 followers. Um, she was a little bit smaller when we first contacted her. But the, one of the reasons why we contacted her initially was because um, we already had that organic like relationship with her because we knew her in person. Um, she had attended a lot of the same sex research conferences that our lab attended. Um, we had met her in person. We knew her research. We knew what she was like as a person. Our lab and me personally um, had already followed her on social media and knew what her content was like and knew that she was a very um, engaging, approachable person um, who really uh, distilled complicated research in a very accessible way, which is why we um, wanted to contact her initially because we already had, again, that like connection and knew what her content was like from months or so of uh, consuming it. Yeah. And then I guess the the next way that we sort of went about selecting influencers is relying on some more of, I guess, like community partnerships that were already established um, through the Women's Health Research Institute. So Shirley Weir, as Bryn mentioned, is the founder of Menopause Chicks, which is an online community and sort of like education advocacy group. And uh, Shirley has a a really, really impressive um, following both locally and I would say beyond that. Um, and she's also emceed um, our public events at the WHRI. And um, she was actually an influencer with the agency we worked with uh, for It's Not In Your Head. So she she had already uh, proven to be a really valuable asset for the team. And then um, Pamela Fairman, similarly, because she's a local um, Vancouver-based journalist, um, she had some ties with Dr. Brado, and she often reports on women's health and health research. So um, we were really lucky to bring her on board for a little bit of support with some live tweeting. And I, yeah, it was just, again, like a very organic process. For the Vancouver Sun, um, it was kind of a, a different form of media that we wanted to uh, go into. So the Vancouver Sun actually um, approached us for a um, chance for a feature uh, on Dr. Brado for their um, uh, International Women's Day feature that they were going to put out. Um, but this was 
for uh, us, this was actually going to um, cost us money, but we decided it was going to be worth it because it's kind of more of a traditional form of media. Um, and it's uh, the Vancouver Sun gets a very like public audience. So it's not um, as uh, focused as some like influencers would have um, or some people who already follow us. So it's 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 much more wide reaching. However, the metrics for the Vancouver Sun are um, obviously a little bit harder to garner because one print, you can't really measure the impact of uh, print media. Um, And then um, even though it was posted on the website, um, we're not able to access the metrics um, behind that post on the website. Um, So while we think it was great that we were able to Um, get into that um, different type of media that um, we maybe might not have considered before. Um, It is a little bit harder in terms of campaign-wise to measure its impact. So, Bryn, did they, they would have told you when the article was released? Yes. Yeah. So we knew when the article was going to be released. So we were able to um, prepare for that and kind of measure before and after for that. Um, but in terms of um, like measuring how many people like viewed the piece um, or yeah, how many people picked up the newspaper um, because of that, that's not something that we were able to get the numbers for. So, so probably important in a case like this to think about the demographic that you're trying to reach and who's, uh, who, who's picking up uh, a physical paper um, these days versus uh, going online. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that I find really interesting in any form of uh, sort of traditional media because um, it's important to think about what your call to action is. What's what's the hook or that that next step um, that you're asking your reader to do? And and I mean, we see opportunities um, for other WHRI members when they're being approached as experts um, to provide information to yeah, to traditional media where they may want to consider putting a plug in for any of their KT work that they're doing, any other campaigns or websites that maybe are more patient and public facing. So one other question about those, um, you know, traditional media, because you mentioned with the influencer contract that you, it really does give you sort of jurisdiction over the product that you're creating, the message that you're creating. So for that Vancouver Sun article, what was the product? You know, for someone who's who's paying a certain amount of money, are we talking a full page ad? Were there visuals? Was it in color? Um, yeah, any any lessons learned from that experience? So the ad for Vancouver Sun, it was a full page color ad um, in the newspaper. So that was fantastic. Um, And then uh, there was also a website uh, feature. So on the website, there was a whole section um, dedicated to this feature. Um, It was women in research in the community. So both were great because they were full, full, full page, lots of visibility for the print and the website. Um, However, because we had paid for this feature, the newspaper made it very clear that it was an advertisement. So Mm -hmm. the, uh, the words advertisement was at the top and 
at the bottom, it said, this is a paid advertisement by UBC Sexual Health Research. Yeah, and I mean, I'll just tack on to that, that even with social media influencers, there is still some sort of obligation to disclose, um, like, that sort of monetary exchange, that it is an advertisement, that it is sponsored. But I think that it's so common now, users are a little more attuned to that type of content. And it's also the users had like we we provided content that we wanted our influencers to share, but there was still opportunity for them to shape it and mold it for their audience. So it appeared more authentic. And so in a way, their their own stories were woven into the content they posted. So it's just that difference between like a very clear full page bold type advertisement in a newspaper <laughs> versus an Instagram post. And so that's just another way to to kind of gauge where you want to put your 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 KT funds. Yeah. So one kind of integrates the the ad into their existing influencer brand versus boom ad <laughs> next exactly. to toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there was toothpaste beside it. Um, this is really, really fascinating. Um, so, I mean, it, you, we're, we're kind of at one end of the, um, the spectrum in terms of media. So can we go in the other direction? Because obviously we have a vested interest in podcasts at the WHRI, given that we're currently <laughs> recording one um, and recently launched one. Talk to us about the engagement process that you went through with um, the, the influencers that you decided to do podcasts with or wanted to do uh, podcasts with? Yeah. So as Bryn mentioned, podcasts just seemed like such an organic and natural fit, especially because there's huge return on investment, but we actually have gotten away so far without having to pay anybody. So it's been a fantastic opportunity (laughs) to get the message out there. Yay. (laughs) Like you said, we have a vested interest in podcasts at the WHRI, but they really are just such a huge, having a huge moment right now. So Bryn and I really felt passionately about, about tapping into that. Yeah. So Melissa and I uh, ended up coming together to brainstorm podcasts that um, we knew or we already listened to um, in order to see if if we thought that their audiences were going to fit what we were looking for for the debunking desire campaign. Um, so what we were thinking for that was maybe younger audiences, more diverse than we were thinking about before. And I think by nature of us both being um, young women in our 20s, um, we did listen to podcasts that were more aimed at uh, younger women. So um, the podcasts that we kind of settled on initially were the Approachable podcast and the Papaya podcast, because both Melissa and I knew their content, uh, listened to their podcast. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, we only have numbers right now for Approachable, um, and we we don't have full numbers, but we have an idea of the impact that that, that made. But it, it really was incredible to see how quickly, um, like, that episode launched, and um, within 24 hours, I forget, Bryn, do you remember how many followers? I you think gained? it was something on Instagram. I, I feel like it was something around... 100 to 200 followers within a 24-hour period. Wow. Yeah, and, and and 
yeah, it was incredible. And I mean, the Approachable podcast, again, they they have their own system set up for promoting their content. So we don't even have any indication at the moment of how many times the podcast has been played on something like Spotify or iTunes, but they've also posted it on YouTube. So there we can see the views. And the last time I checked, I think we were hovering around 10,000. Um, and again, this was like such a completely different type of influencer that we targeted. Um, Samantha Ravindal, the one host is a local makeup um, and beauty influencer who has a very significant following um, and it's her friend who's who's working with her in it. So not not um, not anybody in the health sphere or the research sphere, but just somebody whose values and messaging we really felt resonated with the campaign. And um, yeah, we were so grateful for. I mean, they even went and promoted it on their own Instagram accounts. So again, it's just like that that payoff that podcasting really has. Yeah, and I mean, with one in three women there you do you have to think um where can you inject this information that people are already going do do people really watch the news anymore how many people pick up a hard copy paper uh but we know that as you said melissa podcasts are really having a moment and um and i think because they're they're um they're lower resource than some other forms of um yeah, than some other products, but, um, and they tend to be more accessible. A lot of people have smartphones nowadays where they can, you know, this is your morning commute or your evening commute or while you're washing the dishes. So uh, that's fantastic. Um, so you mentioned another one um, or two other ones, right? Um, uh, two others that, that Dr. Brado has done. Yeah, so there's there's a couple that she's done. Um, it is uh, the other one that um, Melissa and I had brainstormed the Papaya Podcast. That again was um, another um, local Canadian influencer who talked more about um, body positivity and mental health um, and women's health. So it wouldn't have initially been maybe something that we would have considered for our audience because like her her focus isn't necessarily uh, on you know women's sexual health but we did really again um, like her values and and how she pre- presented information so then there was also sexy marriage radio which uh, Lori was actually recruited for because uh, Lori had been on the podcast previously so she'd already had that relationship with them. So I'm just trying to think through, you know, the the triage process that people are going to go through in terms of, yeah, who do I, how do I find a quote influencer um, after they're done defining it? And, and I, I, what I'm hearing from from you both is is sort of striking a balance between people who are already in your network and where the target knowledge user or research user, so the person using the evidence that you produce, that one in three or one in 10 women would go for information. Um, And knowing that, yeah, it it may not look like a a brand alignment, but if people are listening, then you're going to get if more than if more than three people are listening, one out of three of them, hopefully um, the information would be relevant to them. Did you guys um, uh, provide those stats to the influencers themselves when you reached out? The the sort of one in three, one in ten, or I guess for the the influencer, for it's not in your head. That was done by the agency themselves. 
especially for the podcasting, we not only provided those stats, but Brent and I worked really hard and carefully to craft a concise but very persuasive email (laughs) that, again, not only um, framed the importance of sharing the messages of the campaign, but also positioned Lori or Dr. Brado as an expert who they would have access to um, to ask their questions. So that balance of like, here's what we want and can, and are hoping you can help us with, but then this is what you get out of it. So totally just to your last point, um, and to Bryn's last point as well. Um, I think another takeaway, like, yes, it's about that balance between your network and people who are in tune with the right audiences. But I am sure you would agree, Nicole, that I think, I would encourage researchers to um, take the opportunities when they arise um, generally to speak with the media, to speak with people about their research, because the last two podcasts Bryn mentioned only happen because Lori is already so active um, online. And so it just speaks to the importance of really being engaged and, and making the effort all the time to do knowledge translation work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We can, um, we can make sure that we put uh, Dr. Jen Gunter's uh, keynote from our last symposium in the, in the, um, in the notes for this so that if, uh, if researchers need some inspiration, they can, they can watch it. (laughs) That's really, really great. I think, yeah, what, what I, what, what you just raised, Melissa, is that what's in it for me factor, right, which is important for everyone. We want to know, um, if I am going to promote this, because surely um, you two weren't the only emails coming into those influencers inbox or whoever manages that inbox on their behalf. So making sure that you're that signal above the noise that really um, has clear, clear messaging and a, a good call to action that strikes that sort of altruistic nerve. So this has been incredibly helpful and um, and we've done a lot of discussing um, who you onboarded, how you onboarded influencers. Uh, so do you mind uh, giving us a sense of uh, what was the ask of those influencers? What um, activities um, did they engage in to help support the campaigns? Yeah, so for It's Not In Your Head, um... I think we were fortunate again to have worked with an influencer agency because we were sort of passed on a toolkit of different strategies that we could use in campaigns. So for that one, um, we had a variety of what we've referred to as social events, which are basically these like sort of virtual ad hoc social media um, events. So the first was a Twitter chat, um, sorry, a Twitter party, which basically meant that this influencer agency was um, tweeting out questions to their audience um, and people who engaged in the conversation had an incentive to participate. There was um, gift cards being raffled off. Um, So that was a Twitter party. We learned about those. Then we had some Twitter chats, which are very similar. There's just no um, like incentive to participate. Um, And then the, uh, the final strategy, the, we were introduced to was hosting a Facebook Live. So um, that agency 
um, they held this fantastic Facebook Live where Dr. Brado was interviewed about the campaign and about her research. Um, so that, that, that was kind of like the broad overview of what we did for It's Not In Your Head. So the, the, the Twitter party is like a kid's birthday where you get goodie bags. The, the Twitter chat is like <laughs> an adult birthday. There's no presents. Exactly. Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> so Melissa talked a bit about the, the It's Not In Your Head campaign. So how did you um, adjust and actualize um, some of these strategies for debunking desire? So yeah, for, for debunking desire, because we weren't going to be working with an influencer agency, we kind of needed to have all our own tools and resources um, so that we could use those um, as kind of a, a jumping point um, in order to send that to the influencers that we worked with um, or any resources that anybody else had asked for. Um, so we started this by uh, creating a social media toolkit um, at the beginning of the campaign. So this toolkit had uh, information about the campaign, um, about low sexual desire, some graphics that influencers could use to post on their own social media, um, resources on where to go if you um, needed to find more information on low sexual desire, and so on. So this was created as a kind of like a partnership between our whole um, debunking desire team, which included a patient partner from one of our research studies um, who consulted on the information within the kit uh, and the tone of the toolkit, um, which really made it so that we were um, providing information that would be relevant to the population that we were um, essentially trying to engage. So that was really beneficial for us. That's super, super important is the the patient perspective. And, and it's probably worth noting that that this this patient partner or patient partners have to be involved in in the project as early as for, for the, the REACH Award. They're actually one of the co-leads on the grant, correct? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So our patient partner was involved from the beginning of the campaign. Yeah, that's it's amazing, and it's it's great because they have, I'm sure they have insight into not just the the population that you're trying to access, but also like the the message. Did we get it right? So you know, going back to what you guys mentioned, you're distilling you know what could potentially be decades worth of research into into a few tweets and making sure that the the evidence is preserved along with the message that you're trying to convey. That's fantastic. We wanted a place where we were going to host all of our information, including the toolkit. So um, we also created a website um, to host our debunking desire video, um, a list of where our events were going to be held um, and when were they were going to be held, um, the toolkit, um, a quiz that we created um, at the beginning of the campaign um, with a company called Traction. The Women's Health Research Institute has worked with Traction before um, on different um, tools, online tools. Um, so we had that partnership already. And then um, other resources. Um, so everything would be housed on the central debunking desire website. Website. So we had that central place where we could direct people back to um, for any information on the campaign. 
Yeah. And, and this was really, um, both the toolkit and the website were really stemming from some of those lessons that we learned from the It's Not In Your Head campaign. Um, I think it, it was a few months into that campaign, we kind of sat down and we were like, yeah, wouldn't it be helpful if we, you know, if we had some something that we could pass off to people that would just make it really easy to share our content. And then a little bit later, we realized, hey, if you Google our campaign, we don't come up. So maybe a website would have been helpful. <laughs> and we could have got some, some search engine optimization happening. So we actually have a another team member um, on Debunking Desire, who is a social media strategist. And she was fantastic. Um, shout out to Rika, uh, who created our website and who did all of that SEO work for us. Amazing. It sounds like the skills matrix of this team is is very, very well positioned to do the work. Yeah, and really speaks to the importance of having like a very diverse and multidisciplinary team. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There, there's not necessarily a rule book for this. And, and for researchers, it probably feels really uncomfortable because they like methods. And so um, to, to have to just trial and error this is going to probably feel a bit uncomfortable. But it sounds like you guys have done a great job at, at um, using different social media platforms at different times to, to gauge interest um, and engagement in the, in the campaign itself. So that's that's wonderful. Bryn, what else? And Melissa, too. Uh, what do you guys have planned? Or what, what does the this amazing debunking desire uh, team have planned? Because I know you're speaking on their behalf today. So um, COVID-19 has kind of thrown us for a little bit of a <laughs> loop here. Um, so we're, we're just trying to, uh, adapt, um, but everybody has different priorities, um, nowadays, which is totally understandable. So we're trying to fit the campaign, um, and, uh, any future social events into, um, kind of, I guess the new normal that we're working with right now. Um, so we actually, um, a week or two ago, we had another Facebook live event. Um, and that was, uh, where Dr. Brado, um, on our own Facebook page, um, UBC sexual health research did a 20 minute mindfulness meditation to help alleviate some anxiety that maybe some people were feeling with the uncertain circumstances um, that we have found ourselves in these days. And then she applied these, uh, this mindfulness meditation, this technique um, back to our debunking desire campaign and how when you were ready, when things were feeling a little bit better, maybe you could use this um, to help promote um, some uh, help promote the sexual desire uh, in future. We're, we're kind of just rolling with the punches right now. Um, we're thinking about doing a Reddit, ask me anything, maybe a Twitter chat or a Twitter party, um, some more podcasts. Yeah, it's kind of where we're at right now. I, I've heard this Reddit, ask me anything or AMA before. Melissa, can you give, uh, uh, give those, those of us who are Luddites or feel that way, can you give us a, a high level explanation of what a Reddit a AMA is? Sure. So um, Reddit is um, 
a whole beast of a of a platform. <laughs> Basically, it's divided into in, into what they call subreddits, so pages for individual topics. And one that is really popular is the AMA page, and um, you can apply uh, if you have some sort of unique expertise or um, career or something that's very unique. Um, and you have to prove that it's really you. They have a, a whole sort of authentication process you go through. And then um, for a set time, you you have people ask you anything uh, related to yourself and your work. And, and um, yeah, it's often used to promote. Uh, it's been used to promote movies. It's been used by celebrities. It's been used by authors. Um, so we're hoping we can fit Dr. Brado into the mix because we think she has some some pretty cool stuff to share. Mm-hmm. Has she, um, I, I'm mindful that through all of these, um, and Melissa, you mentioned um, something tied to this, but the, the, the feeling that, that you're, you're, you're live um, responding to members of the general public um, about a, a topic area is, could be a bit unnerving for some folks. And uh, Melissa, you raised a great point about saying yes to any media, just as I think too, as a form of tailoring your message and getting into that frame of mind of uh, plain language and distilling that evidence. Is there anything else that you guys um, have been exposed to throughout these two campaigns that you think has helped Dr. Brado and the team in terms of, of um, those activities, like especially the live activities, the live tweeting and the Facebook live? I mean, uh, I'll start, but Bren, feel free to cut in. I think that one thing, um, first of all, to back to your point, Nicole, um, I did mention take every opportunity, but I feel obligated to say, talk to your institutions <laughs> before you run to the media. <laughs> um, but I think uh, a great a, a great starting point, um, and we did this with It's Not In Your Head, we didn't have a massive following, and we did try to start our own Twitter chat. Bryn will remember because I asked her to be a planted member of the Twitter chat. But um, I think that's a, it's a great starting point. So basically, we came up with all of the questions. We had a few stakeholders plant questions, and we sort of generated dialogue between these stakeholders, both to encourage other users to join in, but also um, to get a sense of what type of reaction the content would get. So I would say if you kind of build, work, mm-hmm. work your way up. Um, and if you're doing a podcast, if you're, if you're doing a Facebook live and somebody's interviewing you, um, I think that you can definitely ask in advance, what type of questions will you be asking me? Um, these are the topics that I want to make sure we hit. And we were really fortunate with the podcasters. Um, they were really helpful in that respect. It's definitely been more of a learning process for Melissa and I, I would say, um, because Dr. Barato is such a professional and has been in the media a lot um, over her career, essentially. Um, but Melissa also raised the point of, um, with a snot in your head, they started with a basically fresh set of social media profiles, um, whereas Debunking Desire, we 
have started the campaign going off of our already existing sexual health research profiles. So we already had a following. Um, we didn't have to basically start from the ground up. So we were able to kind of hit the ground running and already um, get the me- our message um, amplified by, by our followers that were, you know, already interested in the content that we were posting um, as, uh, our, um, you know, our research account. So um, I'd say that is hugely beneficial. Start where you have numbers instead of starting from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you're, um, you're, you're segueing nicely into a, a, some key takeaways, um, Bryn, that's perfect. Um, I, I wonder, too, just before we move into more formal um, uh, takeaways, um, is it reasonable to also think about collecting questions um, as a form of engagement, as an engagement exercise itself via social so that your your questions are, are being asked by the community? Yeah, and I mean, that's something that we did with a lot of our um, a lot of our live events was we canvassed the community first through Twitter and Facebook and Instagram to see what our audience wanted to know and what was most important to them. Um, and so we used a lot of those questions to kind of be the, the basis of our social events. That's great. You too. So let's move in. I think what would be great, you know, we'll do a summary of the of this episode and some links to resources that we've mentioned. Uh, Melissa, you raised a great point about talking to your institution before engaging with the media. So, so outside of that, what um, what are some of really the, the key takeaways? If you had to sort of create some tweets of uh, of lessons learned, um, what would some of those those key takeaways be? in digestible sound bites don't be afraid to try new things <laughs> is that an in general um, I, <laughs> yeah <laughs> in general but especially here um i i can't remember sorry if it was Bryn or nicole who mentioned trial and error but i think it's so so true um and i think um nicole you mentioned earlier like there isn't really like a methodology that's like tried and true and will resonate for every single social media campaign out there. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I firmly believe that trial and error is just so critical because your message um, will resonate differently with different audiences and who you want to target is different. I mean, we, a lot of the things we did in it's not in your head. I mean, we, we were using different platforms maybe, but we've tried those same activities here and they've, they've done infinitely better. So, I mean, and I mean, I've, I've heard this from other um, comms communications people in, in the healthcare and the health research space that, you know, on Monday they tweet something and it, nobody likes it. And then on Tuesday they tweet it and it's got a hundred likes and there's really no rhyme or reason. So I think it's just, yeah, so, so important to try different things. I know this is this is aimed at more of a research space. So I think for some researchers, the idea of kind of just winging it and trying new things is maybe a little bit scary. Um, but Melissa has actually been our metrics person um, on the campaign. So um, for researchers who are a little bit scared of like doing that, there are 
ways that you can kind of back this up with evidence um, through looking at the metrics um, from your posts. So um, all platforms, social media platforms um, have a way to download um, social media metrics and kind of look at like the minutia of each post. So you can really see um, what is working for you and you can see trends over time as well. Um, so I guess to not be scared of the trial and error because there are numbers that will support that eventually. Yeah. And I mean, I would say this is very similar to my last point. And I think it's sort of been an overarching theme um, that Brent and I have been toying with is just like going with your gut. Um, You know, as we mentioned how we were trying to come up with different ideas of where we could promote the campaign, which influencers might align. Um, we landed on so many of those ideas and strategies because we consumed a ton of content and we regularly consume a lot of content and maybe that's because we're millennials, but (laughs) I think, you know, it's, it's, it's important. Um, And if you're, if you're not somebody who listens to a lot of podcasts or who's on social media or who, you know, has a sense of what the online space looks like, like, um, do your research. And even if you are that type of person, do your research, um, Google the, you know, for it's not in your head, we were we were searching on Google on Twitter on Facebook provoked vestibular dynia, and then we would try to see what similar phrases or um, other themes of content that came up. And then we would roll from there and, you know, just sort of build up an idea of the conversations that are happening already. And then apply that knowledge to what you know and and who you think might be a good starting point for um for influencers or for for strategies you can use and i think that's been um uh one of the benefits of of having a a team of people as well to work with um behind both it's not in your head and debunking desire is that we we do have this diverse team of people who have different experiences um who are coming at the project from Um, different areas of expertise. So they're able to give, you know, uh, novel perspectives on um, what things to look out for, um, what questions to ask, what kind of content to put out. um, And uh, yeah, having our patient partner um, again, has been uh, very invaluable to us because there were things that she brought up in our, you know, for creating our toolkit that we hadn't even considered as being academics. Um, so like using jargon in our um, social media toolkit, um, she was able to help us um, distill the information a little bit better in, in a way that's a little bit more accessible. So that's super, super helpful that we've had um, such a great team of people to be able to bounce ideas off of. Yeah. And I mean, Bryn mentioned metrics before as well. And we've we've seen even from a metric standpoint how important that diverse team has factored into things because our patient partner has a lot of social connections with people in Romania. No, yeah, Romania. <laughs> um, and our social media strategist has a very uh, big following and a lot of connections in Turkey. And so when we look at our numbers, we can see that sort of organic um uh, yeah, that organic reach that we've had and how we're able just 
even as as a team talking about the campaign, um, how we can each really contribute to um, how far this message spreads. Super, super important. And, and I mean, it, it's probably worth mentioning too, going back to Bryn mentioning metrics, there's a lot of metrics on social media. Um, so, so how to pick one, I remember going to a conference and, and um, it was a social media uh, conference and, and the presenter just said, pick one metric that matters uh, because it, it can be really overwhelming. And, and I'm sure Melissa finds that in collating some of the data. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, definitely do. And I think for both of these campaigns, um, the metric that we've really landed on is reach, which is just how, how many people um, have, have, had this content delivered to them. It's not necessarily read the content or or engaged with the content, but how many Twitter dashboards did our tweets land on and how many people clicked on our YouTube video link. So um, yeah, at least that way we have a good indication of, of, of what type of awareness we were able to build. Just maybe one more final plug, because I think maybe it goes unsaid, but I know you both mentioned it. Um, you you both mentioned or to alluded to it in sort of the, the team dynamic, but the importance to of having a research user and knowledge user um, on that team. Uh, someone, hopefully at the beginning stages of your research project, who can really help you curate the, the meaning of, of the research itself. Well, thank you for thank you both for joining uh, me virtually. We look forward to uh, hearing about the results of the exciting debunking desire campaign uh, for more lessons learned, hopefully down the road as you guys uh, also become podcast experts. Hopefully. <laughs> If you have an idea for an episode or have some research of your own to share, let us know. Send us an email at whri.communications at cw.bc.ca. For more information about WHRI, follow us on social media using the handle at Women's Research or check out our website at whri.org.